Tim Blankenship here, Divorce 661 Daily Perspective, Day in the Life of an LDA. There you are, camera. Episode 39. How are you guys doing today for this Monday, December 11th, 2023? I'm a legal document preparer. I'm a legal document preparer in LA County, handling divorces throughout California, doing my daily updates, a little education on clients' issues, paperwork we handle, little updates on the process, and then I kind of go over a couple of things. Um, today, we'll be talking about if you can legally kick out your spouse during a divorce, um, common mistakes to avoid in a divorce settlement, and how to find the right divorce attorney for you. Um, as far as what we had going on today, four consultations, five new filed divorce cases, four were in LA County, one was in Orange County. All of those are uh, e-filed, which is great. Uh, three new divorce judgment rejections we took over. I'll talk about those ish, people having issues with uh, judgments. Um, they're all LA County cases. One was in downtown LA. One was in Pasadena. Oh, actually one was in Alameda County. Alameda County gives folks a lot of problems. Two approvals today. Two of our clients had approvals from the court. Got those out to them. They are done. Uh, two judgments were e-filed. Uh, those are LA County. We can e-file judgments in LA County, which is nice. Four judgments mailed in Sacramento, San Bernardino, and two San Diego cases. We've had a lot of San Diego cases the last couple of weeks. Um, one of the uh, one of the clients we took on today or this week were uh, just a, a spouse who whose husband had filed for divorce and they're still living together and they she was saying that they were going to be amicable and she hired me and they had already she said her husband had already filed and that she didn't think he had an attorney and you know there's some mistakes on the paperwork the 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 um, the length of marriage had been shortened to just under 10 years. And she thought that was a little funny. Anyways, she hired me to get a response in because she was kind of on the fence of whether or not it was going to be amicable or not. And uh, when she sent the paperwork over, it was probably definitely not going to be, can you say probably definitely not going to be amicable because a uh, husband had an attorney, which means that through that consultation, they probably discussed shortening the length of marriage. They're trying to, play a game with the long-term marriage and spouse support issues, I imagine. But, you know, I talk about I don't normally file responses when I'm working with both spouses. But in this case, I had to recommend we do. Number one, it didn't appear to be amicable. Husband had an attorney and uh, we got, she only had one day left to get the response in. So we got that in and provided her corrected, updated data separation, which put them clearly over 10 years. That'll be, you know, that's not things that we address. That'll have to they'll come up at either trial or through their negotiations and settlement on the length and duration of uh, spouse support. So um, one of the other cases I took on a, a judgment reject, I told you was out of Pasadena. This was, and these were common mistakes. And this is not just to, to this one client, but this is on this one petition, one case, this was the issues um, why their petition was uh, not valid. They did not put, put a date of separation on the petition, did not mark terminate spouse support for either party, let alone herself or her spouse, just left that totally blank. And it's a big issue. You guys keep leaving that blank. Um, mark, there were no assets and debts, but then filed property declarations with the court. Totally confusing to the court. And most importantly, was trying to do a true default case, what we refer to as default without an agreement, when her spouse said they would sign off on the paperwork. So in this particular case, what I'm going to first try and do is 
because she tried to submit her judgment on the own, it was rejected, but not for some of the reasons I would have thought. They're rejecting it because there was no agreement provided, even though she was telling the court there was. She She's putting assets and debts on the settlement agreement that are not included on the petition. You can't do that when there's no agreement. Um, and um, But most importantly, was not having the spouse participate who said they willingly would sign off. So when they... One of the issues that can cause your judgment to get rejected is that spousal support box is not being marked on the on the petition as far as you wanting to uh, terminate or reserve or whatever you're going to do, especially on a default without an agreement like she was doing. But they did not flag it. They basically said in the reject letter, if you're going to turn your judgment back in, mark reserved. We've had courts even say, no, you can't even mark reserved on your judgment because you didn't request it in the petition and you had to amend the petition. So in this case, you know, we're, we're, we're always trying to test the system and see what we can get away with. I don't want to have to amend her petition if I don't have to. So we're going to get husband to sign the settlement agreement since they haven't rejected the judgment based on the fact that they did not put a date of separation on the petition and did not mark uh, to terminate support. The court basically was saying, if you, you will, let you let, we'll let you mark this. So we're going to give that a shot. So I did their settlement agreement. They're going to send it out, sign it, and then we'll submit it. And if it gets approved, great, we're done. I do, I think there's a 10% chance they reject it now upon further review to see that it wasn't marked on the petition, uh, the data separation, uh, especially as well as the spouse support issue. So we'll see how that plays out. Okay, so now we are going to talk about um, some big topics here. And I want to preface this by saying, you know, this this information I'm giving you is not considered to be legal advice. I do some research. I read uh, blogs by attorneys um, that I'm able to then go over what they said in their blog posts. Um, so I research these things. So it's not me just giving you this legal advice. And then what I like to do is go off of from an amicable standpoint after I go through these points is to give an explanation of what that looks like in reality and working with us or going through an amicable divorce. But I thought this would be an interesting um, question to answer. Can you legally kick your spouse out during a divorce in California? So again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just going to refer to my notes here, but I can provide some general information about divorce laws in California as I've researched them. In California, spouses have certain legal rights and responsibilities during a divorce, including property rights and the right to occupy the marital home. Here are some key points to consider based on my research, not legal advice. I had someone really upset with me on TikTok. You know, I take these videos and um, I chop them up into little 10 or 12 second clips. So you don't get in those. You don't get the full like this will probably be a two minute discussion here. You don't you get 15 or 10 seconds of it. And they, they're like, oh, you're giving legal advice. You're not an attorney. And I think what they don't realize is the difference between legal advice and marketing. My videos are for marketing, not for legal purposes. OK, can you legally kick out your spouse during a divorce in California? Number one, I have uh, four points here. No-fault divorce. California is a no-fault divorce state, which means that either spouse can file for divorce without having to prove that the other spouse did something wrong. It also means that the reason for the divorce typically do not affect issues like property division and spouse support. So that, on that foundation, that basis there, that would mean no. In that point, you can't just technically kick out your spouse. But there are uh, going to be some other points here that do come up. Number two, residence rights. During the divorce process, both spouses typically have an equal right to live in the marital residence, regardless of who owns the property or whose name is on the lease or mortgage. This means you that you generally cannot unilaterally kick your spouse out of the marital home without a court order, that court order being the next part. 
Number three, temporary orders. If one spouse believes that living together during the divorce is untenable or unsafe, they can request a court order for temporary exclusive possession of the marital home. However, they would need to provide evidence to support this request, and it would ultimately be up to the court to decide. So 12 years ago-ish, when I worked for the courts and worked for a law firm, there there would be claims of domestic violence um, and requests for exclusive use of the residence. I think I think half the time it would it would work, the other half they'd not they would not because they're displacing obviously one of the spouses. But it's it's on a uh, case by case basis. Obviously, you know if, if you're trying to get your spouse out because of you know domestic violence or threats or maybe just you guys being there will lead to domestic violence. I don't know if that would be enough rationale for a judge to, you know, have a move out order or, or provide exclusive use of the residence. I suppose it could be depending on the context and what's going on. Number four, restraining orders. If there are issues of domestic violence or harassment, a spouse may seek a restraining order that can require the other spouse to stay away from the marital home. I think sometimes people use these, maybe they make up a domestic violence incident. I don't want you guys to kill me uh, upon me saying that, but I, I think you would agree that there are people that use this as a ployer. Maybe it's uh, recommended by their attorney to, hey, if you can come up with something that we can kind of stretch the truth on, we can try and get exclusive use to get your spouse out of the house. Does that happen? I'm sure it does. Um, but, and I don't want to downplay the domestic violence is real, obviously, so don't don't get mad at me there. Uh, but yeah, that you can get spouses out. Um, you can also do, see, when I was a police officer, um, if there's an incident that occurs that we responded to, we can do what's called a TRO. It's a temporary restraining order based on the on the facts. If maybe there's a domestic violence, whether it's misdemeanor or felony, if we feel like they may return, we can fill out like literally on the hood of the car, um, a temporary restraining order. And we basically call a judge and go over the facts with them. And uh, even in the middle of the night, usually in the middle of the night, and uh, they're on call. And uh, they'll they'll give us the approval for the TRO, and then they can then take that to go into court to get a a regular I don't know if it's called regular, but you know a regular restraining order that's more than just seventy two hours. Which I think it's been a long time since I've done that, but I think that's it just buys them some time um, to get in to get that restraining order. So I think in reading this, just in layman's terms, I think the answer is in a regular divorce, no. But if there's something occurs that um, ends up with some type of temporary order or restraint order that provides for that, then yes. So there you go on if you can kick your spouse out. Number two, I want to talk about 10 common mistakes to avoid in a divorce settlement. I got some good ones for you here. Divorce settlements in California can be complex and making mistakes during the process can have lasting consequences. Here are some common mistakes to avoid when negotiating a divorce settlement in California. Number one, not seeking legal counsel. One of the most significant mistakes you can make is not consulting with an experienced family law attorney. An attorney can help you understand your rights, navigate the legal system, and ensure that your interests are protected. So that's that's all fine and well. But I think that uh, that while doing that is great, I would say 99% of my clients don't do that. I think that most people can go through an amicable divorce and know that you know where it's a community property state and everything's divided equally. And so forth. I just had a consultation with both spouses uh, maybe 30 minutes ago. And I think, so it sounded like the wife had consulted with an attorney, the husband didn't. So she lo- knew a little bit more. 
So it's, there's no harm, even if you guys are going to be amicable, to go out and have a consultation with an attorney, spend 30 minutes or an hour, and have them read you the list of your rights so you can make informed decisions. And then that doesn't mean you have to hire the attorney. So now you now you have the power of information, and now you know um, going in to discuss with your spouse to make informed decisions because you know how the game plan is. It also helps people from making mistakes in arguing or fighting over things that are pretty black and white. Like if you, you know, I've, I've heard people say, Tim, I, I want hundred percent of my pension and I don't want my wife to have it. Well, that's just not going to happen. Um, you can spend as much money on attorneys as you want. And that's, that's, the, that, you know, that's pretty clear cut the community property division and so forth. So um, it can help you prevent you from making mistakes in arguing over things that are going to happen regardless if you have an expensive attorney or not. Number two, failing to disclose all assets and debts. Full financial disclosure is essential in in divorce proceedings. Hiding assets or debts can lead to serious legal consequences. Be honest and thorough when providing financial information to your attorney and the court. Yeah, you do definitely want to um, disclose everything. I talked about this last week. We don't see that as an issue here. Mostly what people are doing is they're, they're so amicable that they're asking me, Tim, do we even have to list our assets and debts. And I always tell people, look, I'm not the divorce police. I don't know what you guys have. I don't know what the court has, but here's the disclosure form, you know, from the court that says, you know, you're supposed to do this. Um, but uh, the, the other downside to that is the misunderstanding of community property in another consultation I had today, for example, he's, I said, is there any assets and debts, 401ks or pensions or anything like that? And he says, uh, nothing together. I and mean, this is a common phrase I get. No, we don't have anything together. And I said, I understand, but are there any pensions or 401ks and so forth? They said, oh, yeah, we both have 401k and this and that. So those are still community property assets uh, that you know acquired during the marriage. The fact that you're contributing to them during the marriage makes them community property, regardless that they're not on in the plan. I mean, the beneficiary doesn't count. That's not what we're talking about here. But the fact that it's just been acquired during the marriage. If you just Google, so I'm not giving you legal advice, you know, California community property laws. Um, there's plenty of blog posts out there written by attorneys that explain this pretty straight forward. Um, but yeah, most, I think most of ours is not people. And I know is not, they're not people hiding assets. They're just saying, is it, do we really have, is it really necessary to list them? We're both aware of what we have. Do we need to put it on the settlement agreement? Like I said, not the divorce police, but I tell folks, look, you need to include what you want to see on your settlement agreement that you are going to sign, that your spouse is going to sign, that the judge is going to sign, and then thus become a court order. And um, so if there's any dispute 5, 10, 20 years down the road, maybe someone falls on hard times and says, you know what, we never did discuss the 401k because it's not on the settlement agreement and they want to reopen the case. And you know, there's probably a good likelihood that would happen because it doesn't say spouse is keeping 100% of it. It's just totally left blank um, and not addressed at all. Probably, I'm sure you could find an attorney who could get the case reopened and relitigate that and say, look, this wasn't addressed and now we're going to address it 20 years later. So it'd be good to get that documented properly, I think. Number three, ignoring tax consequences. Failing to consider the tax implications of your divorce settlement can result in financial surprises down the road. Consult with a financial advisor or tax professional to understand how different assets and support payments may affect your tax liability. I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot of these days is um, people using their 401ks as a buyout for the family home. You know, and uh, someone part of the consultation I had with these folks earlier today was exactly that. And it, 
a lot of it is, is being drafted into settlement agreements that our clients are wanting. Um, in fact, we're doing also a, a quadro for a fast client who are modifying their terms and they're going to do that exact same thing. And so you want to check with a tax professional on what that looks like to you because is a is if you sell a home and you guys take those proceeds and that's not tax, it's liquid cash. And let's say you guys walk away with $100,000 each that's now in your bank account um, that's not being taxed versus in this scenario, let's say your spouse says, I'm going to give you an extra $100,000 for my 401k. We go through the quadro. They move that money over into a 401k on your behalf. Now, when you pull that money out, is that going to be taxed? It is a um, pre-tax investment. So I, I would imagine there would be some uh, taxes on that and perhaps some penalties. Again, do your own due diligence, but I think that's what we're talking about in this number three, ignoring tax consequences. It's, it might not always be apples to apples. So make sure you're you're having your paperwork looked at to make sure there's no issues for you. Number four, overlooking marital debts. In California, community property laws apply, which means that both spouses are generally responsible for debts incurred during the marriage. Make sure to address the division of debts in your settlement. So you have assets on one side, you have debts on the other. Of course, you want to include those. Same question comes up to him. Do we have to list them? You know, it's not, you know, we have a lot of clients who people did not really commingle their um, assets. They kind of kept them separate. And I'm talking short-term and long-term marriages where they had their own credit cards. They had their own income. They kind of mutually shared the mortgage that each contribute either a percentage based on their income differences or each pay 50% into a, uh, you know, a mortgage fund or whatnot, but everything else was separate. Maybe someone paid the electric gas and utilities and the other one paid the, the TV and you know, whatever other there are. And then their own credit cards, they, they had those on the side, they bought what they bought and they just want to separate them because they feel that they're separate. You can do that. It's still technically community property both the assets and debts, but uh, if people want to simply keep what they have, we do that all the time. Even when it's not kept separate, not, you know, they have joint cards, but it's like in their, in her name or his name or whatnot. Um, we still have folks saying, well, that's my debts, even though, you know, I know I ran it up $30,000 and technically I could, you know, get an attorney and, you know, put half on him or her, but I'm not going to do that because that these were kind of trips I took separately with girlfriends or whatnot. And so the court will not interfere with you guys dividing that up. If you guys want to keep 100% of your own asset or debt, court, as long as you guys agree to that, it'll be totally fine. The court will not interfere. Number five, rushing the process. Divorce can be emotionally challenging, but rushing to settle without careful consideration can lead to regret later. Take the time to understand your options, negotiate, and make informed decisions. So what I would say to that is most people that work with us, they've come to a point where they are rational um, not making emotional decisions because they're amicable enough to sit down and work out and hash out their details and terms and then provide those to me so I can you know get their paperwork done and draft their settlement agreement. Um, I know that not often, but we'll get calls where um, I can hear on the phone um, that the wife is is obviously upset, maybe even sometimes you know on the verge of of tears or even crying. And they're like, I just want out of the divorce. I don't, uh, or I, I want out of the marriage. I don't, I'm not working, but I don't want spouse support. I don't want child support. I just want my kids and I want to be left alone. And, you know, obviously those are not great financial decisions when obviously there's a need for child support and spouse support, but I, I get where they're coming from. They're just so fed up. They're, they're done. I think 
long term, that's going to be fall under this category of making an emotional decision that is not in your best interest or even your children's in that case. So, but we don't get that here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, our people are our people. Our clients are, are rational, um, amicable, of various levels. And uh, I think what helps too is we're not sitting in a room together. So there, there's, there's not an emotional charge. A lot of our clients are still living together. So obviously that is going to take a certain amount of you being amicable to continue living together together through the divorce process. But those that aren't, that maybe um, it's not the greatest. I mean, it's still divorce, but we do use a portal for the communication. So it doesn't have to be in, in you know sitting in a room or a three-way call. It's communication through a secure portal where all communication is seen by all parties. So everyone's on the same page throughout the entire process. Number six, focusing solely on short-term gains. Consider the long-term implications of your divorce settlement, especially if it involves child custody, spouse support, or the division of retirement accounts. What may seem like a win in the short term may not be sustainable over time. So I think what that could um, refer to is is maybe you walking away from your spouse's retirement accounts that maybe things are great now. And uh, you're like, I don't, I don't want, you know, you, here's how this comes across. You know, he or she earned that working. I think it's theirs. I think they should keep that here at all time. And that's fine. We'll draft it up. You know, husband or wife is keeping hundred percent of their own 401k or pension and they're, uh, the other spouse is knowingly and willingly, you know, walking away from it. They're not being duped. They see it clearly on the settlement agreement um, that, the, and the terms that they provide me, that that's what they want to do. That's fine. Will they regret that 20 or 30 years from now? Who knows? But I think that's what this um, is is talking about that. Uh, number one, I was talking about earlier how maybe you just want to get out of the situation. So you, you like just hey, just keep this. Maybe you don't want the fight. Maybe you don't want to have to, you know, like he or she is you know, insisted on this and I don't want to spend 30 grand on an attorney fighting for this. So I, I just want to, I can go out and earn my own money, get my own pension or 401k. Great. Uh, I think this, uh, you know, focusing on the short term can be a mistake, but uh, that's not for me to say. It's not for the courts to say what the terms that you guys come up with is what I'm going to document and I'm not going to question it. I'm assuming you have done your due diligence and understand that you know exactly what you're walking away from because you'll see it on paper when you go to notarize your settlement agreement that uh, you know, spouse is keeping all this, you're keeping all that, and you'll know what you're getting and what you're not. Number seven, disregarding child custody and support if you have children, their well-being should be a top priority. Work with your attorney to create a parenting plan that consider, considers the best interest of your children and addresses custody and support matters. So child custody and child support has to be addressed as part of an overall divorce case. Um, some clients will say they don't want child support, quite a few in fact. Some say they don't want custody orders, uh, quite a few in fact. It's because they're that amicable. Maybe they've been still living together and they're co-parenting just fine. Maybe they've been living apart for years and co-parenting just fine. When that happens, um, we still have to have a child custody and child support plan. But in the child custody, all we're saying is joint legal, joint physical, and that's it. It allows them the freedom to work out the terms on an ongoing basis and, and um, just as they have been while they're married and maybe post-separation, still being able to work that out. You don't need an official order spelling out all the dates and times. I think people are not shocked, but surprised to hear that we don't have to have a detailed parenting plan when it comes to custody. We just we just don't. And, and often, I'd say 99% of the time, we're not. It's very, very plain, joint legal, physical custody. Um, child support, uh, still need to have a address the child support. We just can't say, 
uh, you know, not address it. So we still attach a child support order to your settlement agreement that says that either there is child support or there isn't. If so, how much and when is it paid, et cetera. And so we can reserve it now. The the courts um, sent me some different language, probably been eight, 10 months now that said we we don't have to do a non-guideline child support order where we say, here's the incomes and, and it says child support should be 800, but we want zero. That's the way we did it before. Now, all we have to do is not even provide incomes of the, of the parents. We just put that it's going to be reserved for future determination and the courts are totally fine with that. So we've been doing that quite a bit as well. So I think it's just important to note, child custody and child support needs to be addressed to what degree is up to you guys. Number eight, agreeing to unreasonable terms. Don't let pressure or emotions lead you into accepting an unfair settlement. Negotiate for terms that you believe are reasonable and equitable based on your circumstances. So that kind of goes back to the other point we were talking about, um, making, you know, focusing solely on short-term games, um, walking away from, uh, you know, unreasonable agreements or, or accepting unreasonable uh, terms. I think you'll know what you're signing off on. We're, you know, we're talking earlier about, um, making the decisions just because you want the divorce to be over. Um, again, that doesn't happen with what we do. Uh, you guys are calling the shots, but I know when I worked for a law firm, I'd hear clients coming in and, and overhear them saying, look, they just, they don't, they don't want to continue, um, with the litigation. They're just, they just want to be done. And in that case, I think that you get grinded down and, you know, the attorneys are saying, Hey, we can still, you know, win this for you, if you will, uh, as a word. But, um, I, I get that some people just get grinded down and they just want to uh, give in. And that's going to be your call um, in that. But yeah, but to negotiate terms that you believe are reasonable and equitable doesn't always mean 50, 50. Uh, I talked about folks who um, want, you know, client that wanted to keep the house was more important to her because of the four kids than having husband's pension. The pension was uh, her community property share in the pension was more valuable than the house equity, but she agreed that, she was able to, willing to walk away with that because it was it was more um, equitable for her and reasonable because of the other conditions that existed, her having the four kids and really wanting to keep them in the family home. So there is a reason you may want to give and take a little bit more. It's not all about the dollar. Number 10, not documenting agreements. Ensure that all agreements reached during the divorce process are, are properly documented and incorporated into the final divorce. Decree, oral agreements, or informal arrangements may not be enforceable. And they're, and they obviously, I mean, you're talking about a different area of law. You're talking about, um, oh, what do you call it? It just would be civil. You know, you have you have an agreement, contract law, I suppose. But it would be, it is good to document. Like I said, I'm not the divorce police. I don't tell you what you need to put on there or don't. There's plenty of Plenty of literature out there written by attorneys and the courts and the law as far as the disclosure process and what you should and should list and, you know, community and separate property and all that. And we do document all that. I get that you're completely amicable and I give people the choice. Say, look, I, again, I don't know what you have, but now what, what you feel is important, maybe high value assets. Um, technically, you should be listing everything and we will list everything if you provide, provide it to me. Again, I don't know what you guys have. And, and again, our, I think the road people go down is some of our clients are so amicable that they're like, Tim, we don't want to list anything for a variety of reasons, because they, again, they are so amicable possibly. Um, and they know they're never going to have a dispute in the future. Um, or some don't want to list it because they don't want their assets and debts, you know, the possibility of someone acquiring that um, because it is quote unquote, technically 
um, public record. Um, if someone knew about your divorce, could they go and get a copy of it? Sure. It's not published online or anything, but they could you know, go to the court technically and go down and get that. Okay. So that was, what were we talking about here? The 10 common mistakes to avoid in a divorce settlement. I think that uh, those points all made sense to me. How about you? Now we're going to talk about five tips on how to find the right divorce attorney for you. Um, because not, not all uh, divorce attorneys are made equally. Uh, find the right divorce attorney is crucial to navigating the divorce process successfully. Here are five tips to help you find the right divorce attorney for your needs. Number one, research and interview multiple attorneys. I think that makes sense. Don't settle for the first attorney you come across. Research and interview several attorneys to find the one who aligns with your goals and communication style. Ask friends, family members, or colleagues for referrals and read online reviews. I think that's all goes without saying, um, you know, getting referrals. I think it's good to do all your due diligence you can in research online and then maybe, I don't know, interview two or three of them. I mean, we all, you know, there's people we like and don't like, don't like how they look, don't like what they say or how they said it, maybe their approach um, to it, maybe with the information, they just rub you the wrong way. You know, use your gut uh, feeling and then back it up with the facts that you have regarding uh, your research you did in reviews and so forth. Number two, look for experience in family law. Duh. Don't settle for the first attorney you come up. Oh, where are we at? Choose an attorney who specializes in family law or divorce cases. Experience in this area of law is essential for understanding the nuances of divorce proceedings. <clears throat> I think one thing I could add to that is the specialization part in family law, because I think a lot of attorneys may do say corporate law or business law or anything other than family law. And then they will also do family law as well. Does that make sense? Meaning I think there's a lot of money to be made in family law because there's so many darn divorce cases going on. So it's kind of, you know, they'll, they'll do that on the side, but their main litigation or is, is, I don't know, auto accidents or something like that. So make sure it's their primary focus or specialty. And there are additional levels of, of specialty within the family law attorney realm. I think it's called, I've seen the initials on the back end. I think there's a, a class or additional training in family. I think it's CLFS. So what would that stand for? I don't know. Certified family law specialist. That sounds good. That might be it. Don't quote me. But I think they have additional expertise in family law if they have that heading. Number three, consider compatibility and communication. A strong attorney-client relationship is crucial. Look for an attorney with whom you feel comfortable and can communicate openly. During the initial consultation, assess their listening skills, responsiveness, and willingness to address your concerns. I think it's important that that, that communication be there because you want to be able to relay to them what you want out of this process versus them telling you what they can get for you. And if they're not hearing you and they're relating something completely different to the opposing counsel or your spouse doesn't have an attorney, they're communicating with them and, and, and the message, um, is, uh, getting skewed from what you said by the time you get to them. Um, what was it? What was that movie? Uh, fast times at Ridgemont high. Uh, you know, Jeff Spicoli, you know, he called him the D word. Um, and by the time it got back around through the school, um, I think they said he had stabbed him. So 
you got to make sure that you're duplicating properly the information you're telling your attorney, which goes into number four, assessing their approach. Discuss the attorney's approach to divorce cases. Some attorneys may prioritize amicable settlements and mediation, while others may be more aggressive in litigation. Choose an attorney whose approach aligns with your preferences and objectives for the divorce process. And this is critical because I've been doing this 12 years. And prior to that, worked for a law firm, worked for the courts. And I know, at least in my <clears throat> local area, I know in my local area who the aggressive attorneys are, who the ones are more um, mediated or um, amicable settlements uh, and more of a collaborative approach. And to the point where if, you know, say I have a consultation with someone and I, and I can tell it's not amicable at all. And I'll say, look, you're going to need an attorney because of X, Y, and Z issues you brought up on this call. I'll say now, based on this, I think, you know, I can give a personal recommendation to an attorney because I know how that attorney is, meaning if someone's canceling, you know, locking doors on you or, or you know, removing the car, taking you off of uh, title, taking you off of health insurance, closing bank accounts, doing all this crazy stuff, I think you're going to need an aggressive attorney. You don't need a collaborative attorney at that point. So I, I know who those ones are. To the other end of that, if you guys are amicable-ish, but you're not in agreement and you just... You need someone to represent you. You may not be going to trial, but you need someone to represent your best interest. I think a collaborative attorney would be best in those situations. Obviously, what happens if you were like, you just need a little bit of legal advice and you need someone to represent you and just handle the affairs for you because you guys can't do it together. If you had the aggressive attorney, they're going to, maybe you guys end up going to trial for issues that you didn't even have until you had the attorney. And I've heard that come up where they said, Tim, we were amicable. We hired an attorney because we didn't know there's like services like mine that are more collaborative. And, um, and we were in agreement. And then it turned out that the attorney said something or did something without me knowing about it. And next thing you know, we're no longer in agreement and we're fighting. And now he has an attorney. Now we both have attorneys and we're going to court. And prior to having the attorney, we, uh, we were fine. And that does happen. So watch out for that. And that, that kind of goes back to, you know, one, two, and three that we discussed about making sure they're a good fit for you. Number five, evaluate fees and costs. Be clear about the attorney's fee structure from the beginning. Understand how they bill for their services, hourly rates, retainer fees, and any other additional costs. Ask about potential expenses and estimated costs, total costs of your divorce. I could probably do a full 30-minute video on ask, on this topic, and maybe I will, because you really, really need to read those retainer agreements. I would not, you know, you're going to be talking to three attorneys anyways. Let's say you're going you're going through the motions and you're taking all of my advice and advice that I've researched of what you should do. And you do all the due diligence. You do the, the checks. You do the, um, you check the reviews. You do all that. You do three consultations perhaps. And then you're going to select the best one. Then you can sign the retainer agreement. I don't think you necessarily need to sign the agreement in the office. Take it back, read it. You're going to have the attorney looking over your shoulder while you're reading, you know, four, six, eight, ten page retainer agreement. And what a lot of people miss is this evergreen clause in there that basically says, you know, your initial retainer is not the total fee. And once we go over the retainer fee, we can continue to bill you. And I'm, I'm saying this very basically, but they can just continue billing you and and go over and not have to notify you. And then you'll be responsible for any additional attorney's fees. That's all seems reasonable, except for you don't know, you're not getting checked in with how long, how much that bill is accruing beyond your initial retainer. 
Um, so definitely read that. I, and uh, I mentioned last week, uh, I had a guy who we've already finished his divorce, already did their paperwork, and he was called 10 to 15. This is his words. I called 10 to 15 attorneys on the phone trying to you know, say we're amicable. Can you finalize our divorce? Our, our divorce, and all that he kept seeing, hearing repeatedly was, "My retainer is thirty five hundred. My retainer is five thousand dollars. Whatever the retainer was, and I don't know if that'll be your total fee because I charge X amount, hundreds of dollars an hour. And if I go over, I go over, and you'll owe the difference. I cannot tell you what your total cost will be. Crazy, eight hundred bucks. I did their paperwork, and they were gonna they were asked, being asked for between thirty five hundred and five thousand dollar retainers for an amicable divorce. So I don't know why it took him ten or fifteen attorneys to find me for my god i do so many videos so many blog posts so many uh podcasts uh tiktok youtube uh <laughs> you know all all of it and uh i know i'm not going to get in front of everyone's eyes but i do my best to do that uh but you definitely want you know i i know having worked for a law firm in the past the the legal fees can quickly spiral out of control so i'll close with the this additionally consider consulting with multiple attorneys before making your final decision many attorneys offer initial consultations which can be an opportunity to discuss your case get a sense of their approach and ask questions about their fees and experience by taking the time to research interview and evaluate potential attorneys you can increase the likelihood of finding the right one to guide you through your divorce process effectively also i want to add one last thing most attorneys charge a fee for a consultation and I think you kind of get what you pay for. They usually will do a reduced rate. Maybe it's half of their normal hourly rate uh, for that hour, half hour consultation. Some will do a free consultation. I, I say you get what you pay for because if you're going to go ask for legal advice and interview them and all that, it might be worth going to an attorney who charges a, a, a retainer, uh, charges a fee for the consultation because then they're not going to spend it trying to sell you on how great they are in using their service because they know that this is a 30 minutes of basically a waste of their time if you walk out the door. Or maybe they use that 30 minutes somewhat asking your questions. I've heard this happen. They say, Tim, I went on this consultation. It was a free consultation, but it really felt like a sales pitch. Um, gave me a little bit of the information, but not enough, it, like forcing me to, to have to hire them before they'd give me any real legal advice. Not all attorneys do that. I know there's some good attorneys out there that do not charge um for consultations i think it's not a full i think they're doing an assessment like what do you have going on and let me give you some basic legal advice but if you really need like you're having issues you have legal advice pay for that hour and then now they're i don't say they're working for you but they are you know they're not gonna you know if it's a 300 for an hour consultation use that time wisely go in with a legal pad with your questions have done some due diligence research online learn about the community property so you're not wasting time with basic questions you want to make it specific to your situation. You know, what's going on? What's your spouse doing or not doing? And get specific answers to your specific issues that you have going on, having already kind of gotten a basic idea of how the process works. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, Daily Perspective, episode 39, Day in the Life of an LDA. Um, this was not legal advice. I'm going to close with that. Anyways, uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. I hope you guys are enjoying these and all the subsequent videos that come from them. Have a great day.